I'm going to get right into this because I know we, I stand between now and lunch, um, so I'll move right along. Our scripture reading was taken from Psalm 77, Psalm 77 and verse 11, just one verse. We'll get deeper into it in the message, but Psalm 77, 11, the scripture says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the, thy wonders of old. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, The Prayer Shift. The Prayer Shift. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to share your word and to look into your truths. Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But I ask, Father, that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ upon that nail. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today, Father. Instead, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. Is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. The children of Israel had escaped Egypt. God had worked in a powerful way. Ten great plagues had fallen, the tenth plague being the loss of a firstborn child. Pharaoh finally threw his hands up and, and allowed the children of Israel to leave, and, and they left jubilant and, and rejoicing as they were able to get out into the wilderness to worship their God. Each plague was a battle against a specific Egyptian god, the, the tenth being a battle really to question Pharaoh's own claims of divinity. When Pharaoh really had a chance to sit back and look around and realize that his laborers had left, that his divinity had been challenged, and his, his, some of his advisors got a chance to speak to him, Pharaoh decided that he was going to mount up 600 chariots and some of his best soldiers, and he was going to go after the slaves who had escaped. They began to march into the wilderness, and, and they began, the, the, the hoofs of the horses began to pound. And, and, and while this is going on, God had led the children of Israel over a mountain pass down into a secluded beach area that, that, that left them in a position where in front of them was nothing but the Red Sea. Behind them was the mountain range and the narrow passes that they had to take to get to this beachfront location. They were literally sitting between a rock and the deep blue sea. They were still rejoicing, and those stragglers in the back began to look behind them. God had set them up in a very special way so that there was a pillar of fire at night and a, and a cloud by day, and, and they were marching and following the way that God was leading them, and, and everything seemed perfectly good. Until someone looked behind them, someone with good visual acuity, could see far into the distance. And, and the scripture says in Exodus 14 and verse 10, the Bible says, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. No matter how many miracles had just been done, no, no matter how powerful God had been in moving the children of Israel out of bondage and into freedom, they were still afraid when they saw Pharaoh. It is often difficult to shake your old master. They were afraid. And in, they cried to the Lord, but then they turned their attention to Moses. 
And they say to Moses in verse 11, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore have you dealt with us thus to carry us forth out of Egypt? Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? There, there were plenty of places to bury us in Egypt. We would have been better off had we stayed there. Verse 12, they say, is this not the word that we did t- tell you in Egypt? Saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. The children of Israel had a powerful slave mentality. And they would rather be slaves than to be free if freedom came with any cost. They would rather stay in bondage than to go free if there was going to be any trouble in acquiring their freedom. And one of the things that began to grip Israel, that began to to hold uh, the entire nation, it seemed, was all of a sudden doubt began to spread through the congregation, through the people. They began to fear and, and worry and fret. And all of a sudden, what was just a few hours earlier, a jubilant celebration, now turned to disgust, fear, and ultimately disgrace. Doubt is powerful. It is one of the devil's most potent weapons. The ability to get you to question God and to question his benevolence. In fact, there are three aspects to doubt that I want to share with you. Three aspects to doubt. Three things that doubt does to a congregation or to a group of people. First of all, I want to say that doubt itself can be contagious. That when one member, one person in the pew begins to doubt God and begins to then share that doubt and to, and to express that doubt, that if you're not careful, doubt like a virus will spread in those with weak spiritual immune systems. But doubt is also addicting. Doubt fills a void and you begin to clamor against God as the children of Israel do. Your doubt becomes a way to try and counteract your fear. And so you begin to doubt God and and it can become addicting so that you keep going back to doubt every time you have a challenge. But for our purposes today, the third aspect of doubt is important. That doubt is also amnestic, which means doubt causes you to forget things. When you begin to doubt God, one of the things that happens is you begin to only remember the troubles and you forget the victories. You seem to only remember the tribulation and you forget all of the deliverance. When you begin to doubt, you forget all of God's blessings and you begin to only remember those things you view as curses. Doubt causes you to see the past differently, and by causing you to see the past differently, it can often cause you to not be able to properly see the future God has for you. Moses' response is speedy, it's quick. Moses says to the people, don't fear, fear you not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. This is it, Moses says. This is God's last stand. He's about to deal with this. And then he says in verse 14 something profound. He says that the Lord shall fight for you. 
And you shall do what? Hold your peace. In trial, one of the most difficult things to do is to stop and let God fight for you. Because we often want to fight for ourselves. We want to defend our own name and our own honor. You've got to stand still and let them do it. And you've got to learn to hold your peace. And as you study this, it transitions. So I'm going to jump to Psalm 77 where our scripture reading comes from. You can turn there if, if, if you have your Bible. Psalm 77, because the children of Israel are in trouble. They're trapped between the Red Sea and they're trapped in, within a mountain uh, 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 enclosure. The, the Egyptians are riding high and hard behind them. And it seems as if there's absolutely no way out of the mess that they are in. In Psalm 77, one of the principal psalmists and musicians in Israel, a man named Asaph, begins to tell of his trouble. And I want to give you the, the Psalms. You see, I've been through some troubles, and I've learned that there is power in the book of Psalms. I have learned that the great medicine for persecution is in the book of the Psalms. And if you study the Psalms, you learn that it not only prophesies of Christ's persecution, it gives you the, what, the, the, the kind of the roadmap of what to follow in times of difficulty, trial, and tribulation. Psalm 77 is profound. Asaph jumps in, and he ties it back in to the story of the children of Israel trapped where they're trapped. So look at Psalms 77 in verse 1. It says, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. Asaph is in trouble. Now, Bible scholars have looked at this. No one knows what was going on with Asaph. No one knows how he got into this trouble or what his trouble was. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't specify because it allows Psalm 77 to be the bomb when you have a trial. Verse 2 says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. He says, my sore ran in the night. And it ceased not the pain of the heartbreak, the, the pressure of the, of the difficulty, it, it, it would not stop on me at night. He says, in fact, even when he tried to be comforted, it says, my soul refused to be comforted. Verse 3, he says, I remembered God and I was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Asaph is in such trouble. And maybe some of you have been in trouble like this. Maybe you've been in a kind of difficulty, the kind of grief, heartbreak. Maybe life has thrown so many uh, bad things at you that you get to a place where, where you remember God, but, but remembering him only causes you to feel even more troubled. He says, my spirit was overwhelmed. Why was his spirit overwhelmed? And I want you to understand that when you doubt, one of the things that often follows doubt is complaining. He begins to complain just as the children of Israel complained to Moses. He begins to complain. And, and how many of us, our prayers are more a litany of complaints rather than a statement of praise? He begins to complain. Now, I want you to follow this, the psalm because what happens in the psalm is, is that Asaph comes down the road of doubt, of discouragement, of depression, he comes down that road very hard and very fast. Verse 4 says, you hold my eyes waking. 
He says, I'm so troubled I can't speak. He can't sleep. He can't even form the words to speak about what's going on. He said, I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. He says, I, I can remember better times. I, I remember singing your praises, but, but I'm searching and, and I'm not finding that place again. Then he begins to sink even deeper. And I have been in verses 7 and 8 and 9. I've been here. Will you ask God, will you cast me off forever? Will you be favorable unto me no more, God? Is your mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail evermore? You notice what happens. He starts off in trouble. He moves to complaining. And before it's all over, and and don't miss this because this is the natural progression often when trouble comes and we begin to doubt. Notice where he heads. He heads to a place where he starts saying, look, God has just cast me off. He's not favorable unto me anymore because his mind and approach to God is one that says, God is favorable when good things happen to me. God is not favorable when bad things happen to me. That image of God is a dangerous view of God. It is not the view of God that Job has in his trouble. Job says, naked I came into this world and naked will I go out. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is happening to me and my circumstances are not an indicator of the condition or the goodness of the God of the universe. Does his promise fail every more? He begins to question God's word. Do you get, you see the, the downward spiral? And then in verse 9, has God forgotten? This is one where it gets to stick you. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? So he hits the two corner principles, grace and mercy. You see that? So he begins to question grace and mercy. What is grace and mercy? Grace says that you will receive things you don't deserve, good things. Grace says that you will receive a heavenly home that you could not have worked to earn. That's grace. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Mercy, on the other hand, says the penalty that you were supposed to get, you also will not receive. That's why grace and mercy go hand in hand. Grace says you're going to get what you couldn't have earned. Mercy says you're not going to get what you deserved. Now, you're in trouble spiritually when you get to a place where you start to ask God, have you forgotten grace? Lord, have you forgotten mercy? Then he kind of comes to a culmination in his questioning God. In verse 10 of Psalm 77 where he says, And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now watch this. The Amplified Bible actually presents this in a way that makes it a little more clear. It says, And I said, this is my grief, that the right hand of the Most High has what? Has changed and his loving kindness is withheld. If you complain long enough and you doubt long enough 
And you get to where you question God's word. And you get to a point where you begin to question God's goodness, his grace, and his mercy. By default, the conclusion the enemy wants you to come to is this one. That somehow God has changed. That's where the devil wants to move you to. Now, we had a question in Sabbath school this morning about depression. And and, and about, about even suicidal tendencies. Let me tell you something. I've been there. I've been through trouble that would cause you to want to die. In fact, one of my favorite Bible verses became 1 Kings 19 and verse 4 after Jezebel had chased, uh, uh, was chasing Elijah and he ran into the wilderness. Uh, 19 and verse 4, it, it finishes, the verse finishes. Uh, he, he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And Elijah, the great prophet who had just called fire from heaven, Elijah says... Oh, that, I, that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. For I am not better than my father's. This is a place that Christians can get to. A place of utter discouragement, difficulty, and pain. Where you begin, your prayers are just a series of complaints. You're only reciting to God your problems and your difficulties. And and you get to a place where you begin to question God. You begin to question his goodness. You begin to question his steadfastness because your problems have alienated you. Those who you thought loved you, those who you thought supported you, those who you thought had your back, now you can't find them. Those that you worked for and you, and you served, even they begin to disappear and you're left alone with God and you look around and you question God, are you just God? Are you fair? Once we begin to believe that God is not trustworthy, that he can go back on his word, that he can change, we begin to drift into utter darkness. Asaph, in his trouble, changes the very nature and direction of his prayer. And the sermon, really, today is about this prayer shift that Asaph does in Psalm 77. It is about him using what God had done for Israel as a bulwark and a standard to hold him up in his time of trial. This prayer shift holds a key to dealing with doubt. It is a secret to successful prayer and power in time of trial. So what is the prayer shift? Let's look at it. The first thing, number one, is this. Focus on who God is by focusing on what he has done. The prayer shift says, I'm not going to pray my problems. I'm going to pray my praise. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. It's powerful. Don't miss this. You see, God inhabits the praise of his people. When trial comes... It is important that you lift God up the same way as the day good news came. It is important that you recognize that God does not change. Your circumstances might change. Your environment might change. Who supports you might change. But God himself does not change. He says it like this. Verse 11 is where the shift happens. He says, I will remember the works of the Lord. This is our our scripture reading. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. When Asaph gets to the point, when he is ready to give up on God, 
he goes back and he begins to study what God has done for him and for his people. That's the anecdote for his doubt. And rather than then praying to his problems, he begins to pray to the greatness of his God. Let me tell you something. Our prayers ought to start with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts how? With, th- with praise and thanksgiving. The outer court of the sanctuary, you're supposed to enter into it praising and thanking God. Don't start your prayers, prayers with your complaints, but with an acknowledgement of who God is. Your prayer life will change drastically when God's goodness, his mercy, and his consistency is the center of your prayer. Number two, tell others, I want you to pray with the testimony in mind. Pray with the testimony in mind. This is I share. Our prayers are to be prayed because we understand that when God delivers us and deals with what we're going through, he is going to leave us with a testimony. So we ought to pray so that we'll tell others. In fact, uh, Asaph says it like this. He says, I will will meditate also of thy work. He's going to focus on what God has done. He says, and then I'm going to talk of your doings. Why is it so important when you're in trouble? and in trial to tell others about God's goodness and his grace. Well, the psychologist William Glazer says it like this. You will remember 10% of what you read, 20% of what you hear, 30% of what you see, 50% of what you see and hear, which is why I like slides when I I speak, 70% of what is discussed with others, 80% of what you experience personally. But look at the last one. You will remember 95% of what you teach someone else. You've got to look at the way you do things. This is, let me tell you something. I know this is I share, and you're here to be equipped to go out and share and tell others. But let me tell you what's powerful. Sharing with others is one of the surest way to shore up yourself. It is by sharing that we often learn the most. And if we're humble, if we approach every interaction with humility, you'll be amazed at how much we learn in each interaction as we share. I tell when I'm training physician assistants or nurse practitioner or medical students or residents, I tell them the same thing. If you're humble when you walk into the patient's room, you'll be amazed at what the, te- what the patient will teach you. The third thing. I want you to question everything in your trials except God. You can question everything in your trials but God. Look at what it says here. Verse 13 says it profoundly. It says Psalm 77, 13. You hear these in in seminars, but, but here it is in practical application. Thy way, O God, is where? Is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? His way is in the sanctuary. Why is that so important? Because the sanctuary is an outline. It it gives you an idea of the very plan of salvation and, and the process of salvation. It speaks to who God is. He says, when I'm in trouble, one of the things I'm going to reflect upon is the sanctuary message. Not, not when I'm trying to convince folk to become Adventists. When I'm in trouble, I'm going to go back and I'm going to study the sanctuary message because the sanctuary message will give me a a refreshed understanding of God's grace 
and his mercy, two of the things the devil is trying hard to rip from me in my trial. He says, you are the God that does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. He's saying, look, look at the plan of salvation. Look at God's ability to save. Remember the power of that sanctuary message. We we often say to the Adventists, the the sanctuary message is unique to us. I, I want you to look at the sanctuary message a little different, that when you study it, that you understand it is a it is actually a powerful statement of God's goodness, of his grace, and the fact that he does not change. The fourth thing from Psalm 77 that Asaph gives us when we're making this prayer shift is that we need to remember that what you fear, fears God. What you fear, fears God. Now, I like this. I like what Asaph does because this dovetails back into Moses and the children of Israel trapped with Pharaoh and his armies coming to get them. This dovetails back because Asaph, as he's remembering God's great works, he goes back to the Red Sea and he says in verse 16, the water saw you, O God. The water saw you, and look at what the Red Sea waters were. The Bible says they were afraid. The depths also were what? They were troubled. Did you get that? The children of Israel are afraid. Now, now it's deep because God doesn't even, Asaph doesn't even reflect on the fact that by this point, Pharaoh and his armies are afraid. See, by the time the, the waters are about to move, the pillar, the, the, the cloud has lifted up from in front of the children of Israel. That, that first GPS system. And, and it lifts up and it travels over them and it sets down behind them. And, and, and we are told that, that in its sitting behind them, it confuses Pharaoh and his armies. And it is what causes them to be stuck in place. We'll get to more detail in a second. So the cloud moves back and traps them. Now, so Asaph could have said, look, Pharaoh and his armies were afraid of you. But Pharaoh and his armies are human. They are, we all understand that they are capable of fear. So what does Asaph does to make the point that what you fear fears God? He speaks to the inanimate. Water itself is afraid of God. If God has control over the quote-unquote emotions of the elements in this world, what, what are we so afraid of? It's the same thing when Jesus was on the boat and a storm came and Jesus is in the hind part of the boat sleeping and a storm comes and the Bible says the boat fills up with water. The disciples are panicked and they run to the back of the boat and they shake Jesus and they say, wake up, wake up. Don't you care? We're about to die. Oh, you guys have so little faith. Stretches, yawns. Feet wet from the water in the boat. He goes to the middle of the boat, stands up, and he says... Peace, be still. And the Bible says there was a great calm, inferring that it was more calm after the storm than it was before the storm. Oh, y'all missed that, see? Went over your head. He takes you into the storm because when you go into the storm and you wake Jesus up in your storm, he makes your life more calm post-storm than it was pre-storm. And the disciples say, what kind of a man is this that 
even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, the answer is back in Psalm 77, because the water and the wind fear God. What are you so afraid of? You serve a God who speaks, and the elements must stand at attention. The hydrogen and iron are atoms and molecules that form water must stand at attention when he speaks. The wind has to stop. Earthquakes can be silenced at a word from God. What are you so afraid of? But he goes into more detail. The water saw you, O oh God. The water saw you. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water on Pharaoh now. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also went abroad. The lightning and the thunder began to attack Pharaoh and his army. The voice of their thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lighted the world. The earth trembled and it shook. Pharaoh and his armies, not understanding who God is, thought they could chase God's children and destroy them. I'm here to submit to you that when you chase God's children, God will defend his children. The fifth part of the prayer shift is this one. Faith grows when there are no footprints. Faith grows when there are no footprints. Faith grows when there are no footprints. Verse 19 says, thy way is in the sea, meaning that the path that God made was through the Red Sea. This path within the great waters. But look at the last part of that verse. And thy footsteps are not known. Now watch this. Don't miss this. You got to get this. They didn't know where God was leading them when they were following the cloud. When they were leaving Egypt and they were going, they didn't know where they were heading. His footsteps were not known. God was leading them somewhere. I'll come back to what Ellen White says on this in a second. He was leading them somewhere. Let me tell you something. Your faith grows when you have to actually step where you can't see where your foot's going. Your faith grows when God allows turbulence to hit your life. When the death of a loved one who you leaned on happens. And you wonder, how am I going to make it after the death of this loved one? And you can't see which way to go. I challenge you that God has footsteps that you can't see. All you have to do is ask him to place one foot in front of the other, one foot at a time, and you will follow him where he's leading you. But if God showed you, if the path just lit up in front of you exactly where to walk, it would take no faith. It would take no faith if God always told you exactly how everything was going to work out. So God allows us to sit in a place of uncertainty so that he can show us where he wants us to go. The sixth one out of seven is this one. God's purpose is bigger than your problem. God's purpose is bigger than your problems. We go back to Exodus 14 so that Moses can break this thing down. He's, it's, and the Lord said, or God's going to break it down to Moses. And, Lord, and the Lord said unto Moses, why are you crying unto me? Speak to the children of Israel that they do what? Go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand 
over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So while you're clamoring, crying, and complaining, God already has the exit route plan mapped out. The Red Sea was always the bridge they were going to take to the promised land. Even when they couldn't see it because the waters were rough and they were moving and they couldn't see what was happening, it was already taken care of. God actually said, like, come on, Moses, chill out, man. All this talking is just slowing down the process. Lift up your rod, hold it over the water, and guess what? The water will obey and it will split. And you won't go across on muddy ground. You're going to go across on what? The miracle isn't just in the water separating. Their sandals never got damp. Like the three Hebrew boys in the fiery furnace didn't even smell like smoke. They went through on a dry highway. It says in verse 17 and I, and beho- and of, of, of Exodus 14, he says, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I, look, at, look at the purpose of, their, of the problem that they're in. Here's the purpose. And they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Why did this story play out the way it did? So that the entire known world and beyond would know that the only God in the universe that deserves honor is the God of Israel. You see, because Pharaoh got honor before that. He was a superpower in the time. He was the divine leader of the great empire that was Egypt. God says, listen, I led you this way on purpose. While you're complaining, I've got to deal with a great controversy. And I've got to begin the process of globally breaking down the, the hole that paganism and, and disbelief has on the world. And because Pharaoh refused to accept with all the evidence given him that I am God, He will be used to give me honor despite himself. Spirit of Prophecy says it like this. God in his providence, God in his providence brought the Hebrews into the mountain fastness before the sea. That he might manifest his power in their deliverance and signally humble the pride of their oppressors. He might have saved them in any other way. But he chose this method in order to test their faith and strengthen their trust in him. On the one hand, God allows us into trouble for two reasons. One, when we come out the other side of it, he gets the honor. He gets the glory. We have a testimony that we can share that says, I was in the valley of death and I, did, I wanted to give up, but the God of the universe showed up in my Red Sea experience and delivered me from Pharaoh. But he also allows us to get into that situation so that we will trust him, so that we'll understand it may not always make sense to us the direction that we're going, but, but he's got a plan for your life. And even when it leads you into, into dire straits, that's the, the etymology of the Hebrew word for trouble, kind of has the, has the, um, um, the, the, the connotation of, of being squeezed in. So when you're in those dire straits, 
God is beginning to develop you to be able to deal with greater trouble in the future. Every time we go through trial, our spiritual muscles grow. You know when you go to the gym and you lift weights? You have micro tears in your muscles. When you lift weights, you do resistance training. The muscles get microscopic tears in the muscles. And the way God, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. So the way God repairs the muscle, he doesn't allow the muscle to come back together like this. He leaves the space in the muscle and fills in new muscle from the bottom up. You get that? So every time you face resistance, every time your muscles are tested, your body signals to grow new muscle by the very damage the trial gave you. It's the same way with faith. You see, every time we go through a trial, and I've been through some dark, deep trials, but every time you go through the trial and you push back in the name and power of Jesus Christ, the faith muscle, that spiritual muscle, it grows and it grows because you're pushing back. And God doesn't just give you, doesn't take your faith that been hurt like it has been in Psalm 77, uh, 1 through 10. He takes it and he leaves a space and you get a new, stronger faith so that you're ready for the next trial. The last thing about the prayer shift is this one. Number seven says, the Lord is still our shepherd. He's still our shepherd. And why a shepherd? Because sheep have a few interesting characteristics. Why do we need a shepherd? Because sheep are dumb. They're clean, but they're not very bright. Pigs are unclean, but they're a lot more intelligent, actually. So sheep aren't very bright. So one of the reasons you need a shepherd is because we are each spiritually dim. I'll put it that way. The second thing is sheep have no natural defense system. They have no big horns. They have no sharp teeth. They have no claws. They can't come together four or five sheep and beat up a wolf. Actually, it, it, it flies in the face of evolution, if you really think about it. They've never evolved, if you believe in evolution, they've never evolved the defense system, so how could they have survived? They survived because of the symbiotic relationship between shepherd and sheep. Oh, y'all missing this thing. Don't miss this thing. You see, it's, it's, it's a good thing to be a sheep as long as you got a shepherd. And as long as you got a shepherd, as long as you got a shepherd, you're a safe sheep. As my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. The Lord is still your shepherd. In fact, the last verse of Psalm 77 says it like this. Thou leadest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's still a shepherd. Each pastor, each spiritual leader is God's co-shepherd, leading each congregation. Wrap it up with a couple more uh, quotes from Patriarchs and Prophets. She says, the great lesson here taught is for all time. Often the Christian life is beset by dangers, and duty seems hard to perform. The imagination pictures impending ruin before and bondage or death behind. Yet the voice of God speaks clearly, go forward. We should obey this command even though our eyes cannot penetrate the darkness. And we feel cold waves about our feet. She says the obstacles that hinder our progress will never disappear before a halting, doubting spirit. Don't miss this. 
Those who defer obedience till every shadow of uncertainty disappears and there remains no risk of failure or defeat will never obey at all. Never. She says, unbelief whispers, let us wait till the obstructions are removed and we can see our way clearly. But faith courageously urges an advance, hoping all things, believing all things. So I want to challenge you today to make the prayer shift. Change the way you look at God and look at the purpose he has for your life. Change the way you see things. Don't look at the obstacles and the challenges and the problems. Look at an unchanging, unflinching, unwavering God who is good no matter what your circumstances are. His benevolence is not arbitrary. It's not negotiable. It's, it's not arguable. Even in your darkest hour and my darkest hour, he is a just and good God, which means that when he gives you dangerous territory to cover, when he sends you out by yourself and it is as if the entire world would devour you, oh, you just got to trust him. You can't see the footprints, but you got to follow the voice. And you got to step where you don't see soil sometimes. You've got to take a leap of faith sometimes because if you aren't willing to step out on faith, what the great things that God has for you, you will never realize. I saw this just a few weeks ago when I was seeing a patient. He was hooked up to oxygen, a terminal lung disease from smoking and drugging. And alcohol, he was there with his faithful wife who was by his side and, and just supporting him in this dark hour that he was in. I went into the room and I began to talk to him and I said, listen, you know, we, we need to admit you to the hospital because you look like you have a really bad case of pneumonia right now and with your decreased respiratory capabilities, this pneumonia could actually take you out. The man looked at me and he said, that's okay, doc. I want to die. I I'm okay dying. And I said, what about your wife? What about your, what about your children? What about everything else going on in your life? He said, I don't care. He's, and, he, and, he, and he kind of used an inappropriate word and he said, I don't care. It's, I'm, I'm ready to die. Look, look at my condition. I said, no, listen, we... This isn't a life-ending situation. We can, we can treat you. He said, let me just go home. I don't want anything. I looked over at his wife and she dropped her head and I could see the pain she was having. I asked God, how, how do I share right now? What do I say to this man who, who, who's right? No matter what we do, he doesn't have a whole lot longer to live. And I asked a question I asked many patients. In such a situation, I go out on a limb. I know sometimes you're not supposed to say some of these things, but I had to say it. I said, sir, are you a believer? And his wife jumps in and says, he's not only a believer, he's a pastor. I said, you're a pastor, but you, but you want to die. And he, and he, and he kind of calms back down a little, and then he gets angry again, and he says, listen, look at me. He said, I once had a large church. Hundreds flocked to hear me preach. 
I had an internet ministry with thousands who tuned in online. Look at my condition. Look at my situation. I'm broken. This is what serving God got me. His wife kind of looked at him sideways for a second, and he, he drew back, and he said, well, I did slip away for a while. And in those years away from God, I, I used drugs, alcohol, picked back up my smoking habit, and, and one of the drugs he used was very damaging to the lungs, and that's why he was in this critical situation. He said, I know, he said, but I give up. He said, I know where I'll wind up if I die. And in my mind, I'm saying, brother, don't be so sure if you questioning God like this, where you going to wind up? But I didn't say that out loud for the record. And I said, what is it that is troubling you so much? He said, I've lost so much. He wanted back the glory days in the pulpit with the hundreds of people listening. He wanted back that elevated position that he thought he'd lost for sure. How could he in that broken state with oxygen in his nose, how could he stand before the people of God and tell them that God is good when his situation was so bad? I said, let me tell you something. I said, one, there are things you can do to improve your health from just the way you eat and live that will actually add years to your life even now. Some of your diseases can be reversed. And I started to explain to him from Scripture, starting in Genesis and going through, the advantages of a plant-based diet and, and some other things. And, and he stopped me. He said, are you a Seventh-day Adventist? <laughs> Sheepishly, I said, yes. Yes, sir. I am. He said, my wife was raised, raised Seventh-day Adventist, and, and I was raised Seventh-day Baptist. He says, do you listen to Doug Batchelor? I said, stop trying to change the subject, sir. We, we, let's go back to what we're supposed to be dealing with here. I said, not only can God give you things that you think have been taken, but I want to submit something different. I want to submit that even if you can't stand in a pulpit and preach right now, that you can still go online with the oxygen in your nose, the nasal cannula, and the oxygen tank by the side of your chair. And you can go online and tell people that no matter how bad life is for you, God is still good. And I said, let me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something profound, sir. I said, I will guarantee you that you will have a greater impact in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ if in your trial you're willing to share about God's goodness than if you hope to be fixed first and then say how good God is. In fact, sir, I would submit that sharing God's goodness will be a part of your healing process. I said, you don't need to die. You need to live. You need to live because you've got a story, you've got a testimony that you need to tell folk who trusted you for many years. You tell them that story, somebody will come to know Jesus Christ in a way that you never even could imagine. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.